Joe Biden's campaign platform was noticeably silent on one of the top education policy priorities of progressive Democrats, widespread forgiveness of student loans. Biden did call for Congress to forgive up to $10,000 per person of federal student loans as part of its CARES Act pandemic relief package, but lawmakers chose instead to put a temporary pause on borrowers' payments. Now, with that pause set to expire, some in Biden's party are calling on him to think big on student debt relief. And if Congress won't act this time, they say the president-elect should do so on his own. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Beth Akers, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. Beth is the author of Tailor Debt Relief to Those Who Need It Most, which will appear in the winter 2021 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Beth, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So let's turn to the situation that the incoming administration will be facing. As I understand it, as part of the CARES Act, Congress temporarily excused all borrowers from making payments on their federal student loans. That pause was set to expire on September 30th, but President Trump issued an executive order extending it until the end of the year. So where, where are we now? Sure. So, you know, we started into the pandemic and I think everyone was so concerned about the immediate cash flow problems that households were going to have. And they were looking for ways to put a pause on things that that the federal government could do, um, which wouldn't be hugely disruptive to the financial sector. And student loan payments was one of them. So they said, okay, we can alleviate the monthly payment burden of these households and make sure that there's nobody who's having to make a payment that's unaffordable to them for now. It's kind of an easy, relatively inexpensive way to just ensure um, in, a, in a particularly cautious way uh, that no one's up a creek with these student loans in the face of the COVID crisis and the, and the economic fallout of the unemployment crisis that ensued following the onset of the closures and things earlier this year. Um, so yeah, now there's, there's mounting pressure to do something else. So we're getting to the point where um, soon we will have these provisions expire. Um, in theory, we have a backup behind this. Uh, we have a, a student loan uh, repayment safety net, which we can talk more about, um, which could step in um, and take over. But uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, Democrats are really pushing for something much bigger, and that's student loan forgiveness at a more universal level. So let's talk about the range of options on the table. As I mentioned, Joe Biden endorsed the concept of $10,000 in relief per borrower. But as I understand, Elizabeth Warren and Chuck Schumer have called for the new administration to forgive up to $50,000 per borrower. And they've suggested that the Biden administration could actually do this unilaterally without authorization from Congress. Is that right? Uh, well, that's a bit of an open question, to be honest. Um, so there are a range of proposals on the table stemming from like a universal um, student loan jubilee, which means we wipe away every penny that's owed to the Department of Education through the federal student loan program to these more modest proposals like capping at $50,000 or $10,000, which was endorsed during Biden's campaign. And I've even offered that 5,000 would be an unreasonable amount along with some other accompanying policy changes. So right now we're in a position where everybody's anticipating the divided government with Biden in the White House and Republicans holding the Senate, which means it's unlikely for any sort of uh, cooperative um, legislation to be passed on this issue. I don't expect Republicans to be supportive of any sort of widespread student loan forgiveness 
beyond uh, shoring up the existing safety net programs that are very specifically targeted to people who are really struggling. So that's prompted people to say, you know, what about using executive action to make this happen? It initially became part of the discussion when Senator Warren indicated that it's what she would do if she were in office in 2021. And it's back on the table now in the anticipation of the divided government. Um, legal experts are disagreeing about whether or not this is actually possible. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm having to just kind of interpret their <laughs> expertise on it. Um, some of it uh, is very ambiguous. Some of the defenses for doing uh, an executive action to forgive student loans that um, leave things a little bit uncertain for students um, in terms of whether or not a future administration would collect on them. So there's a lot of open questions about whether or not it can happen. Um, there's some uh, belief that it would need cooperation from OMB and IRS, and um, I'm skeptical that they would be able to get that sort of support. So uh, I don't know. I mean, but this this is an issue where um, the the center of the conversation has moved really quickly. I mean, the idea that we'd be talking about this in the mainstream policy discourse, um, I, I never could have imagined five years ago. So who knows um, where where that momentum will take us in the coming year. So there's the could he question, could the president unilaterally uh, dispose of student loans in a widespread manner? My reading of the Higher Education Act is that it gives the Education Department the discretion to quote, compromise, waive, or release its claims on student debtors. That's the authority that President Trump cited in his extension of the CARES Act provisions. So I guess the question is whether Trump's move was in fact appropriate and if so, whether the authority extends to the outright forgiveness of student loans. So that's one aspect. And as you say, legal experts disagree on that. But the second aspect is, should he do it? And I think that's more in your wheelhouse in terms of expertise. So should he do it? What are the strongest arguments in favor and, and against widespread debt relief of the kind that's on the table? Well, I think the arguments in favor of it are pretty apparent. You know, we all log in and read the newspaper, or I guess some people read it on paper still, um, and read the articles about people who are struggling under the burden of student loan debt. We've seen numerous reports of um, these younger generations with student loan debt delaying what we think of as signals of adulthood, like getting married and buying homes and having children. And there's some, some evidence uh, for that and some evidence to the contrary. And so clearly the lives of the people who have borrowed this $1.6 trillion in, in student debt would be better if they didn't have to make these loans. And there's also a, a racial component here, which is that the, you know, there are a large number of black minority students who have tremendous amounts of debt. And so there's a sort of a racial, racial justice um, motive for this as well. So the, there's a lot of popular reasons to do this. Unfortunately, I'm often arguing the reasons not to do it, which make me much less popular, especially among my um, cohort of millennials who have an awful lot of student loan debt. And we should say here uh, that these proposals tend to poll pretty well, which is, which is why the Biden administration may face some serious pressure to do something. Right. And so I would have initially imagined, and I think a lot of people would, that these would be really popular among people with a lot of education and a lot of debt. Um, and in fact, they do pull really well with that group. But what's surprising is that they also pull really well with people who didn't go to college. And, you know, maybe that's um, them thinking if I didn't have to take on debt, I might have gone to college or just having sympathy for this other community of people 
who seem to be struggling under the weight of repayment. So the crux of the argument not to do this is that it's largely regressive. What that means is that it's delivering tremendous financial benefits to people who are already pretty well off, economically speaking. Why is that? You know, we tend to think student loans must be taken out by poor people who go to college, right? So that they can afford to go to college. The reality is that a lot of people who take on a lot of student debt go on to be among the most affluent people in our economy. Think doctors and lawyers and MBAs who have a lot of debt, but also have access to really high paying jobs. And so for them, they're much better off financially with that debt and their degree than they would have been without it. And so the problem with any sort of universal type loan forgiveness is that those people are getting a disproportionate amount of the benefits. Now, capping the benefits at 50,000, 10,000, 5,000, what have you, that helps a lot in terms of targeting the, the dollars that our federal government are spending on this program towards the people who are struggling more financially, uh, but it's still a problem. And then, you know, if you're on the more conservative end of things, you might even be thinking, there's the people who are entirely outside of the higher education universe. That is the people who haven't gone to college at all. People who are using SNAP benefits, TANF, why not expand those benefits instead? We have limited resources. Um, you know, even some people believe we don't have limited resources. I tend to believe we do. Um, but, but even without limited financial resources, we have, we have pol limited political resources to get things done. Uh, and I'd much prefer to see something that's serving a needier population um, than something that's just so tremendously expensive and is really very poorly targeted. And what about the economic impact of debt relief? As you mentioned, one of the arguments we often hear is that a high debt load is holding back the economy by preventing young Americans from making major purchases. And that argument may be especially salient now since policymakers are looking for ways to juice the economy amid the mm -hmm. pandemic slowdown. So regardless of whether it's an efficient way of targeting resources at the most deserving, most needy population, is loan forgiveness worth considering as a fiscal stimulus measure? Yeah, great question. So, you know, a lot of times when I'll argue these points with someone, they'll come back to me and say, okay, fine, but at least it would be good for the economy. And we can't do much else because we're kind of in this gridlock with the Republican Senate and a Democratic White House. And so why not do it if it, if it can help? It's like a stimulus payment, right? The issue is that when we design stimulus payments, we try to give money to people who we think will go out and spend it in the economy. And so for those people, it's what we call a high multiplier um, individual. So they go out and spend the money, then they spend it with somebody else who goes out and spend the money. And that activity is good for the general economy. If, for example, imagine I have $18,000 in student loan debt. I'm making, say, $200 a month payment on that student loan debt. The cost to the government to forgive that debt is $18,000. The change in my cash flow each month is only about $200. Also, I'm a college-educated worker, which means I'm doing pretty well. I've got savings. I'm probably saving some of my monthly income. That change of $200 is not necessarily going to amount in me going out and spending every penny of it. And it's especially not going to go out and result in me spending $18,000 of it because that wasn't even part of my cash flow issue uh, prior to the forgiveness. The result is that there's a very low multiplier that most experts are estimating for the population of people who would receive these benefits. And in essence, it just would work pretty poorly as an economic stimulus. Now, I want to come back to one of the points you made earlier, which was that 
if the current pause on repayment uh, is not extended into the new calendar year, that what would happen is that the existing system of safety net provisions for borrowers who are having a hard time would kick back in. Uh, and that's something to keep in mind for policymakers as they think through the options on the table now. Tell us more about what that safety net looks like and how that should inform our decisions about what to do in this moment. So if you're someone who's consuming information about student loans through the popular media or even following the political discourse, something that you may not know is that borrowers who feel financially burdened by their student loan payments have an option to enroll in a repayment plan that will reduce their monthly payment to a level that's affordable based on their income. And it still gets better than that. If you continue to make payments on that sort of program for 20 years, and meaning that your debt has remained unaffordable, unaffordable relative to your income for the duration of that time, any debt that's remaining is forgiven. Um, if you work in public service or for a nonprofit organization, it only takes 10 years for you to get to forgiveness. This is a program that works actually pretty well for people who pay for college but don't see the return that um, would you know, ha have it make sense for them to be able to afford to pay back those loans. It's kind of like an insurance policy on going to college. People don't know it exists in part because it's administered very poorly. It was not passed into legislation as a big universal program. We had piecemeal changes through executive action um, and legislation so that we have a cobbled together safety net. So I don't blame anybody who doesn't know it exists, except the policymakers, because they actually do know it exists, but it's not politically convenient to talk about the existing safety net that's in place. So what I'd really love to see is that we really work on getting people to know about those plans and also make them much easier for people to use because that's really the ideal solution, which is targeting relief to people who are in financial hardship. Um, so that, that's an often neglected point, but just critically important for the conversation. And an additional point that proponents of debt relief often emphasize is that student loans aren't dischargeable in bankruptcy, that there's no way out. But you suggest in your recent article for Education Next that that claim is also a bit misleading. How so? It's misleading in two ways. First, we have these safety nets so that bankruptcy should not be necessary for somebody for whom their student loan debt is unaffordable. You should go through the income-based repayment program and have their debt forgiven. And in fact, there are no other financial repercussions of having debt forgiven in that way. Whereas if you were to go through bankruptcy, you have your credit score affected, your ability to purchase a home may be affected, your, even your job prospects may be affected. So it's actually a better channel to go through. The other thing is that, in fact, student loans can be discharged in bankruptcy sometimes. The, the bar is higher than it is for credit card debt, um, but it still happens that loans are discharged, especially in the case that someone becomes disabled or just simply you know, can't reasonably afford to repay their loans. Um, and so that does happen. So it's, it's true in, in a sense that you can't simply go through bankruptcy and have your debts wiped away, um, but there are also structures in place that, that make that okay. So you're making an argument here that the system that we have in place already does a decent job of targeting aid to those who most need it, that its administration could be improved so that people are aware of the safety net provisions that are available to them, but that 
for the most part, the core components of the system that we need are in place. So I guess I want to ask, are, are no changes needed if and when Congress ever gets serious about revising the Higher Education Act? Are there steps that it should consider? Sure. So I definitely want to see the elimination of this cobweb or patchwork of student loan repayment plans so that we have a single income-based repayment plan and that students are automatically enrolled in it after they graduate. So part of the problem with the current setup is that you need to know the program exists before you can sign up for it and benefit from it. It's very likely that the people who need it the most are the least informed of its existence, which is a huge problem. So I'd like to see that change. The other piece we haven't talked about is that a lot of the people who are struggling with student loans are people who started college but didn't finish. Um, we see that in that the highest rates of student loan default are among people who have less than $5,000 in debt. Many of them started maybe at a community college, took on a semester of debt, and then left and weren't able to repay because they didn't have the extra earnings that comes with having the credential. Something that I'd really like to see is uh, that we front load some of the grant eligibility that students have um, for post-secondary so that it becomes less risky for students to dabble in college and then leave. So you can imagine, you know, we have currently a Pell Grant program that spreads benefits across each year of enrollment for students. So they collect some grant aid in each year that they're enrolled. I'd like to see if we could post more of that grant aid towards the first year of enrollment. For people who go in and, and through college, the cost of the federal government is the same, right? We don't necessarily have to increase spending, but for people who are gonna start but then not finish, at least they get some extra expense covered and may not be saddled with student debt that, that is really unaffordable to them. And the fiscal impact may actually be negligible because these debts often don't get repaid anyway, either they're forgiven through an income-based repayment program or students are going to default. So that's kind of pie in the sky. I don't expect Congress to get um, too creative in any reauthorization of the Higher Education Act in the near future. Um, but if I had the power to do so, that's probably what I'd, what I'd make happen. All right, now I wanna close by going back all the way to something that I think I heard you say in the very beginning of our conversation, which was that despite the arguments that you've just laid out against widespread debt forgiveness, that you might endorse a more limited proposal to offer up to $5,000 in debt relief per borrower, given the argument that you've laid out, why? Mm -hmm. Here's the rationale. Like I said, the highest rates of default are among this population that has less than $5,000 in debt. So wiping away the first $5,000 in debt would work really well to alleviate the burden for those people. I would also see it as sort of a bargaining chip to say, okay, we're essentially gonna put a pause on the, the financial burden of student loan debt in that time, let's make happen a reauthorization of the Higher Education Act where we streamline those safety nets for people so that we know that they're actually working because they're not working now. So, you know, while a, a doctor or a lawyer with lots of debt, but also lots of income might not need that $5,000, to me, that seems like a fair enough um, chip to give away in order to get a streamlining of the repayment system so that we don't need to continue to have these conversations. My guest today has been Beth Akers, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of Target Debt Relief to Those Who Need It Most, available now at educationnext.org. Beth, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.